cross on which Christ died is the cross for our salvation, that we might live. How great to be reminded of it, not only in singing, but also in instrumental song, and also as coming to this table this morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 16, as we are continuing our study of this great gospel We're looking still at Jesus preparing his disciples for his crucifixion that is now just hours away, Uh, not long before he will be arrested and taken away, and we'll talk about that. I was hoping we'd get to it by Easter. I don't think we will, but we'll try. But uh, just thinking about how those apostles, how those disciples must have felt as they're talking to Jesus, and he's talking to them, and he's giving them this lengthy discourse after observing the Last Supper together with them, and he's preparing them for what they cannot even begin to imagine. He's preparing them for his death. You see, you've got to understand, these disciples were coming at it from a totally Jewish, uh, Israeli mindset, Israel mindset. There was no place in their thinking, there was no category in their thinking that would allow them to make sense of a Messiah who came and died, rose again from the dead, and then abandoned them in order to send another comforter or another paraclete. They just could not comprehend that. that there was no category for thinking about that. And yet that exactly is what Jesus is telling them is about to take place. Hear the word of the Lord, starting in verse 16 of John chapter 16. We left last week how he talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the comforter that would be coming, who would come and judge sin and righteousness and judgment, and who would come and bring them into understanding of truth, and remind them of all things that they heard and that they'd forgotten, but he'd help them remember, and ultimately he would simply glorify Christ in the fullest sense of the term. Then in verse 16 he says, A little while... A little while, and you will no longer behold me. And then a little while, again a little while, and you will see me. It's a strange contradiction almost, it seems, unless you understand he's talking about those three days between the crucifixion and the resurrection. Some think he's talking about the time between his ascension and the second coming. There's certainly an application there. But I think looking at these disciples, he's talking about the time that comes between the time he dies and the time he's resurrected. A little little while, and you'll no longer behold me. And then again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples, therefore, said to one another, not to him, but to one another, what is this thing he's telling us? A little while, and you you will not see me? And... And then again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. And so they were saying, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is talking about. Now Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this? that I said a little while and you will not behold me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, verily, verily, listen, listen, this is the truth. I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. 
and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for, the, for joy that the child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too, now you have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy away from you. This is the word of our Lord in John chapter 16. Hear what he's saying here. All the evidence, I think, points, I think points to the fact that he's talking about his death and resurrection uh, in this context as he's talking to these disciples. They're still confused. They're still trying to say, why is the Messiah not going to establish a kingdom? Why is the Messiah not going to run the Romans out of Jerusalem and set up a kingdom and go sit on the throne of David and rule forever and ever? Why is it that he's talking about being the Christ, the the promised one, the one who has come from the Father, but he keeps talking about dying, he keeps talking about going away, he keeps talking about going back to the Father, he keeps talking about sending then a paraclete, a comforter, a counselor who will come and be with us. Why all this talk? We don't understand it. And so they started grumbling among one another. The, the word there that, that New American Standard uses said they started to, to deliberate together. But, but they're just really confused about all this, and they just don't understand why it is that this has got to happen. You realize that Jesus has been preparing them for this for three years? It's not like he just sprung his crucifixion, that his death on them at the very last minute. It's not like he just said, listen, I know you guys hadn't been expecting this, but I want to tell you what's about to happen. He's been preparing them throughout his whole ministry. He's been talking to them for three years about how he came into this world for one purpose, and, and, and that purpose was to go to Calvary. That purpose was to die. It wasn't to set up an earthly kingdom, but they're still struggling with that because they just don't have the, the category to place it in. They're still struggling. And so he says, I want you to know you're going to have grief. You're going to suffer grief. You're going to, you're going to wail and you're going to lament and you're going to, you're going to cry. You're going to, you're going to be discouraged. You're going to be despondent. You're, you're just not going to be able to figure this out when you see me hanging on that cross, dying. And when you see me breathe my last breath, when you see me say, into your, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, when he, when he gives up the ghost, as it were, and dies there in our place they're still not going to understand it. Their grief is going to grow, and their grief is going to be magnified, and yet there's going to come a time just three days later when all of that grief, when all of that lament, when all of those tears are going to be turned to joy, Jesus says. He says you're going to understand that, that there's going to be more to this than what you're seeing with your physical eyes. You know, we're guilty of that, aren't we, as, as Christians today? We believe what we can see with our eyes, hear with our ears. We believe what we can touch, and, and if we can't touch it, see it, feel it, or, 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 or hear it, or taste it, then we feel like it can't be real, it can't be what's going to really happen. But Jesus said, I want you to understand, what your eyes tell you, and your ears tell you, and all your senses tell you, is not what's going to be the reality of what's going to take place in three short 
days. So they're struggling with this. He talks about them mourning. The, the word he uses there for mourning and lamenting is a very strong word. It, it occurs several places, but only uh, it, that word mourn only occurs here in this text in John's gospel. The word weep, to weep, occurs in several texts. In John eleven thirty one and 33 and 2011 and 2013 and 2015. And each time that word to weep is used, it's always used in connection with death. In chapter 11, it was used in connection with the death of, of Lazarus. The, the people were weeping and wailing around the tomb when Jesus got back. And it even says that Jesus went up to the, to the opening of the grave where Lazarus was buried and the stone was against the grave. And it says there in the, that shortest verse we talk about in the scripture, Jesus wept because his friend was dead, because there had been death. The, the idea of weeping always is used in John's gospel in connection with the idea of death but the joy that jesus is promising here is a joy that will spring forth from his resurrection it's a joy that will spring forth in your life when you experience his resurrection when you realize that he is lord and he is the savior and he is the one who came from god indeed god in the flesh god incarnate who came to be our savior to be our substitute to, to be our sacrifice. When you recognize that and you see that, Paul says in Philippians that you will experience the power of his resurrection in your life. And when you experience his resurrection and when you know his resurrection as a reality, your grief, your weeping, your sorrow, even in this world, will be turned to joy. And he makes clear here in this last verse, we'll look at it in a minute, that no one, anytime, anywhere, if you're in Christ, will ever be able to take that joy away. That is a tremendous promise of the Scripture. That is a tremendous promise from our Lord. He says, I want you to know that nobody can take it away. And so you have to understand that moaning and that weeping and that lamenting that he talks about there in, in verse 16, that you won't see me for a while, then you'll see me. You have to look at that, uh, the next verses, in light of that, if you really and truly want to understand it. He uses a parable, if you will. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a false parable. It's not a, a made-up parable. It's, it's very much a reality from what I understand. Now, I have to admit, I can't give you first-hand knowledge of that. Because he talks about the best way to describe this is when a woman is pregnant and is having a baby. For nine months, she goes through all sorts of situations, all sorts of changes, when she gets to that nine-month point, the baby is ready to be born, and, and there is great mourning and great weeping when that comes about. I've seen it, never experienced it, okay? But he says, that's the way it is. That's the way it's going to be with my death and resurrection to those disciples who are gathered there with him, but folks, to us too when we see his resurrection, when we know his resurrection in our life. He says, you know, the, the woman weeps, she, she's in trouble she's struggling she's she's in travail and she has sorrow because that hour has come and essentially he uses the same word there for hour that he always talks about through the gospel of john about the hour of his death his hour that is coming he uses that same word here that same idea here and the woman is coming and, and, and the, the sorrow and the the travail is so strong that i think he's saying it almost feels like death is about to be imminent but when the baby's born all that sorrow all of that travail is forgotten. Why? Because
because there's a new human being right there holding him or her in, his ar- in her arms. And, and the woman, he says, quickly forgets all that she went through. Now, I'm not going to debate that point with any of you ladies whether you really quickly forgot or not, but God's Word says you did, so I'm going to assume that that's, I'm going to know that's true in one level anyway. She quickly forgets all that she's gone through. She remembers the anguish no more because there's joy now that a child, and, and the word there is anthropos, which literally means a human being, the joy that a, a human being has now been born, a creation of God that she's been involved in and her husband's been involved with has now been born into the world and holding that little precious life, you forget all the anguish, you forget all the horror, you forget all the suffering that went through to get to that point. He says that's the same way it's going to be. You remember what the disciples do when Jesus is crucified? They scatter. They go into hiding. They're they're afraid for their own lives. They're weeping. They're sad that their their leader is gone. They're sad that the one they've committed their lives to for three years and, and were following, knowing that he was who he said he was, but yet now in all sorts of conflicted ideas because they didn't expect him to die. And they're hiding, scared for their lives. Let me tell you something. That was was troubling. That was travail. That was a very difficult time for those disciples. And yet, three days later, when you read those accounts in the Gospels of the the disciples going to the the tomb, and whether it's Mary and Mary Magdalene and the others that go there first and and see the stone rolled away, as as one Gospel writer describes it, or, or whether another one describes where John and Peter run and and John lets Peter go on in ahead of him, and they, they, they just see there the resurrection scene. When they came out of that, and when they saw the Lord resurrected, when they saw him in his resurrected body and saw him in his glory once again, let me tell you, they forgot all about those three days. They were so filled with joy that the one whom they loved and the one whom they committed their lives to was now alive. And their joy was born out of that. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, listen, for for a while, for for a little while, in verse 17, you will not behold me, and a little while then you'll see me again. And he says, I want you to know this. The world is going to rejoice. You know, you're going to be sad. Verse 20 says, truly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world's going to rejoice. What kind of rejoicing do you think was taking place in the, powers, the, the power rooms of, of Rome right after the crucifixion? What kind of rejoicing do you think was taking place at, at the synagogue, at the temple, after, after Jesus was, was crucified and, and those religious leaders thought that he was done for? They were rejoicing because they felt like they thought that they had put to death the one problem that was distorting and leading the people astray from the law of Moses and from the traditions and the the rituals of their religion. And they were rejoicing. They were glad. We finally did it. And basically Jesus is saying, here, let them have their party. Let them have their joy. Let them have their fun. Because in a short time, your tears are going to be turned to joy, and their joy is going to be turned to horror. And that grave is empty. Oh, they'll make up some stories. They'll say, oh, well, while the soldiers slept, the disciples came in and, and stole the body right. Those soldiers were wide awake, 
fully alert and fully trained Roman guards. They were not going to let some little fisherman slip in slinging a halibut or something and, and steal the body. Well, then others said, well, they took the body and they, they hid it, you know. They, the Roman authority said, you know, those disciples are going to come and try to steal it. If they steal it, then they'll, pose this, they'll propose this hoax upon the people. They'll say, oh, he's, a, he's risen now, so, so we're going to take the body and put it somewhere else for safekeeping. And so they took it and they put it somewhere else, some said. Well, that's interesting. All they had to do was put, a, put the death nail into Christianity. It was just simply to say, hey, you guys are rejoicing because you think he's risen? Forget it. We put the body over here. We'll show you. Put it on a cart, roll it up and down the streets of Jerusalem, say, here's the body of Jesus. It'd be all over with. Christianity would never have gotten started. No, the reality is, as we talk about every Easter and celebrate really every Sunday, but every Easter we really specifically look at it, we, we rejoice in the fact that the one who died on the cross really is alive. And I want you to know, their joy was enormous when they saw Christ again. They forgot about the tears. They forgot about the lamenting. They forgot about the sorrow. They forgot about the hiding. They forgot about the fear for their own life because he was alive. This is not an unusual way to express it, this sorrow turned to joy or or even an unusual to use the, the woman in pregnancy and travail as she's about to deliver to describe what takes place with God's people. Old Testament Israel knew that God was always able to turn their sorrow and mourning into gladness, to, to give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. Jeremiah talked about that in Jeremiah 31, uh, 13, when he said, Then a virgin will rejoice in the dance. And, a, and the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. There, Jeremiah is prophesying the coming of Messiah. He said, I know my people are suffering, God's people are suffering right now, but there's coming a day when the virgin is going to enter the dance. And I've got a feeling Mary danced a bit when she heard the angel say what was about to happen. Or Isaiah in Isaiah 61, 2 and 3, when he says, To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, again talking about the coming of Messiah, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Isaiah is saying, listen, when you understand the reality of who Messiah is and you understand the joy accompanying his resurrection and the joy accompanying his being alive today and sending the paraclete, sending the Holy Spirit to be our strength and to be his presence in our lives, I want you to understand, you'll be an oak of righteousness and you will be planted by the Lord that he may be glorified. It's your purpose in life, to be an oak of righteousness. To be planted by God wherever you are. And to through your planted life to glorify God forever. To exalt Jesus Christ forever. Isaiah 26, 
Verses 16 through 21 is, is particularly important here because it, it combines the figure of the woman in childbirth and, and the words for a little while and the promise of resurrection. Listen to this, Isaiah 26. O Lord, they sought you in distress. They could only whisper a prayer. Your chastening was upon them. As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she rises and cries out in her labor pains, Thus were we before you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed in labor. We gave birth as it seems only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth. Nor were the inhabitants of the world born. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn... And the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until the indignation has run its course. For behold, the Lord is about to come out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. There, Isaiah, in Isaiah 26, talking about this whole idea that even we suffer as with pain, as with suffering in childbirth. We desire to, to have that deliverance of the Lord taking place. And, and Jesus saying to those disciples, when the resurrection takes place, you can know that reality in your life to those disciples and to you and me. We live in a world that, that's suffering pain. If you don't believe it, look around you don't believe it, just watch the news for 10 minutes, if that long. Our world is in pain, and our world seeks, it in, seeks relief from it in every conceivable way. We seek for it in recreation. We seek for it in entertainment. I remember several years ago, Neil Postman writing a book entitled, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Evaluating the American Culture. And, and it was, it's a very appropriate book. It's a bit somewhat dated now, but it's very appropriate because it still describes what our world is trying to do. We're trying to reach out there and find something meaningful. And yet, to quote the old country song, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. Not that I'm a country music confectionado or anything, but that's, uh, it's true, we are. We, we're looking for it in everything but where it can be found in Christ. Money, possessions, stuff, sex, alcohol, drugs, you name it. We just want to find something that will give us meaning, something that will give us a little joy, something that will give us just a little purpose, you know, just, just, just a little bit when Christ is saying, listen, let me fill your joy up. You can have my joy, and it will make your joy complete. Let me, you come to me if you're burdened and heavy laden, and, and I will give you rest, and I'll give you peace, and I will give to you my joy. He's going to talk more about that through as we get into John 17 in that great prayer and as he moves on toward the cross. Jesus wanted to give those disciples joy. And Jesus wants you and me to have joy. He wants that to be the thing that characterizes our life daily, whether it's at work or at home or in church, that joy will fill our hearts. So he says in verse 22, Therefore, 
You too now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. And listen to this last phrase. And no one takes your joy away from you. Your heart will rejoice. It's the exact same words that's found in Isaiah 66, 14, in the promise of the consummation, the coming of the end time. It's the same thing. Your heart will rejoice. You will be filled. Your sorrow will be transformed into joy because Jesus will not be defeated by the grave. The grave can't hold him. Death can't defeat him. Death is no conqueror in our Savior and our Lord. The sorrow will be transformed into joy because Jesus will not be defeated by the grave. Your joy, your sorrow, your longing, your pain, your hunger can all be transformed into joy by the resurrected Christ. Now understand, I'm not talking about happiness here. I'm not talking about a giddiness that just says, oh, I'm always happy and giddy. No, the world's still against you. The enemy's still against you. But you see, there's a great difference between the joy Jesus is talking about and what we determine as happiness. We pursue happiness. Jesus wants to give us joy. Here's what joy is. Joy is having that inward conviction, that inward knowledge, that that firm conviction that no matter what hits us, Jesus Christ is in control of all things. And we're living in light of his resurrection. His resurrection power is a reality in our life. Paul said, I just want to know him better. In Philippians chapter 3, he said, I just want to know him better, and I want to know the power of his resurrection in my life, and I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings in my life, and I just want to be conformed even to his death, because being conformed to his death, living in light of his resurrection power, will fill my life with joy. And that's his promise to you, and that's his promise to me, who come to faith in Jesus Christ. I will give you joy, your joy will be filled, you will see me, you will rejoice when I'm resurrected, and no one can take that joy away from you. No one. Satan can't, the world can't, circumstances can't, you can't even take it away from yourself if you're in Christ. That's the promise, that's the truth. That's what he wants to show you. I want to ask you how you think the disciples felt. We know when they, when they met there after the resurrection, when they were in the room and they saw him, they rejoiced. And, and even, even old Thomas, when he finally saw him, he bowed down. He said, my Lord, my God, he worshipped him. But how do you think the disciples felt? What do you think their emotions were when they came to this table after the resurrection, after the ascension? After Christ has gone back up into heaven, back up into all his glory, and they saw him going, and they gathered back and they said, you know, he told us that night that we were to do this regularly and do this in remembrance of him. He told us that night in the upper room. Remember, he was talking about his death, and we didn't understand it. And 
Then we saw it, and now we've seen the resurrection, now we've seen the ascension, and, and, and it's all making sense now. The Spirit has come at Pentecost and, and filled His church, and, and there's a whole new experience there taking place. How do you think they felt when they came around this table the second time? Jesus was not there physically. But now they understood that the death was a death for the salvation of his people. Now they understood that by his death the Holy Spirit has come and has filled them that they can proclaim the gospel boldly throughout all Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth ultimately. When they came together the second time, they weren't arguing about who would be greatest in the kingdom. They weren't debating about which was the most important. They weren't saying, Lord, you can't die. We're not going to let you die. We're going to stand in the way and keep that from happening. None of that confusion. I've got a feeling when they broke that bread and took that bread, they said, "This this is representative of my Lord's body, which is given for me. That, that I might have life, that I might know him. And this, this cup, this cup is, the, is the cup of his blood. It, it's, it's representative of the blood of the new covenant that's poured out that I might have forgiveness of sins and that I might walk with him and know him and be in covenant relationship with him. I have a feeling when they met that second time, there were no tears. There was no sorrow. There was no confusion. There was unbridled, unmitigated joy and rejoicing in the presence of the Holy Spirit. You know what the great thing is? We have the privilege of coming to this table the second time. After the resurrection. After the ascension. After Pentecost. And while those disciples were struggling to understand what was going to happen before them, all we have to do is look back to the reality of what Christ has done. And this morning as we come to this table, I want you to think about the reality of what Christ has done. You're here this morning and you know the Lord Jesus Christ and you're in good standing with a, with a gospel church. I invite you to share in this, even if you're not a member of Grace. Because this is the Lord's Supper. It's not Grace Baptist Supper. It's not the Baptist Church Supper. It's the Lord's Supper. And if you're, a, if you're in good standing with your local church, you're a baptized believer, I invite you to participate. Share in this with us. If you're not, I ask you just to Let the elements pass and think about what these represent. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross that we might live. And I invite you to Christ. I invite you to the Savior as you think about these elements. Would you pray with me? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want you to just... Prepare your own hearts for this as the deacons come to prepare for service. I want you to ask the Lord 
I want you to pray the words of the psalmist David in Psalm 139. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way, any sin within my life. And if there is, lead me in the everlasting way. Lead me in the truth. Lead me in forgiveness and cleansing. Father, we thank you this morning for the gift of your Son. For the Scripture that teaches us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Lord Jesus himself said, this is eternal life, that you may know God through his son Jesus. Father, we are grateful for that sacrifice. We are grateful for the application of that to our lives by the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you help us remember, help us examine ourselves, and help us confess our sin as we come to this table this morning. Thank you, Father. Now, as the elements are prepared, you continue to pray. And as the elements come to you, I ask you to just hold them in your hands until we all partake together. It says Jesus blessed the cup and blessed the bread that night and it passed it among them. Father, we are grateful to you for the gift of your Son. We are grateful to you, Lord, for giving this ordinance that we might remember we might reflect on your grace reflect on your gift Father that we might confess we might see our lives in light of your word bless these elements as we take them in Jesus name There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit and life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of air, the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, 
But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no man, no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You then have been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ, who is our life, is revealed. Then you also will be revealed with him. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Scripture tells us that on that night, moving toward Calvary, he took the bread and he took the wine and he said, this, is, this bread is my body given for you. Take and eat it and do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. He said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. Hebrews talked about the new covenant. Jeremiah talked about the new covenant. Not an old covenant written on stone, tablets, but a covenant that would now give us the privilege of being a part of God's family, adopted into that family, whereby he would be our God and we would be his people and our sins would be forgiven. So this is the blood of the new covenant. Take and drink it and do this in remembrance of me. The scripture indicates that after they did that, they, they went out into the garden where Jesus prayed and the disciples fell asleep. But they sang that hymn and they went out and Calvary was imminent. We're going to sing a hymn together as our musicians get ready for that. We're going to sing a hymn together, but not just to go out on, but also to invite on. It's a hymn of commitment, a hymn of invitation to Christ. A time of reflecting on what he has done. And maybe you're here this morning and, and the Spirit of God is 
said, boy, that body and that blood was given and shed for me. And I need to confess Christ. I invite you to do that. I invite you to come to Christ for life and for joy, for all that he brings. Let's stand together. Let's sing together. As God leads you, be obedient as we sing together.